This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Dr. Mendoza is going to speak more, as Dr. Weiss commented, on the impact of immigration, trauma, and children and youth with disabilities. Fernando, welcome. Thank you. Lucy, thank you very much. Um, so I'm talking uh, about immigration. Um, I have no disclosures except one. I'm a child of an immigrant. How many of you have parents that were not born in this country? So as Paul talked about violence, violence has been around a long time. My grandfather fought in the Mexican Revolution with Pancho Villa, got shot four times by our family history. He decided that was not a safe place to live. So he came with his family, worked on the railroads, and then uh, in the, uh, uh, farm, as a farm worker, and brought his family to California. That's my dad. My parents raised me. You, can, you know that's me. Child has a very big head. <laughs> but I think that's the history that we have. But the history that I grew up with was immigrants are welcome. There's hope here. But as one gets older and looks at the real history, you see things like the reality, that they're not always welcome. And indeed, if we look at our history, and this is something that actually I didn't know much about until recently, but in the 1930s, U.S. citizens who were Mexican by the government were deported back to Mexico. Among that group was my mother. And at 91, she felt that that was the most traumatic experience in her whole life. So I think that immigration and the kinds of things that happen are really powerful. So what I'd like to do is sort of cover these areas. It's going to be sort of a fast oversight, uh, demographics, social determinants, health status, utilization, policies, and then what I think we need to do. And these are the learning goals. I, I think that at the end of the day, those of us in health professions need to understand something about immigrant kids, the social determinants, uh, their health status, how they differ, uh, list some of the factors of you know, what are the problems in utilization, understand some of the policies that we're looking at in terms of how they apply to this group. And lastly, and lastly, is to talk about is our system ready to see these kids? Demographics. I use that picture because that's what we look like. L last year, 19, uh, 2018, we went through this. This is the demographics of the United States. This is where half, that 50%, half of the, uh, of the population. The red line is kids. That line last year crossed the 50%. That, that says that half of all the kids in the United States are minority. That line here, adults, will cross in the next 20 years, where half of the population of the United States will be minority. This is what the population of kids looks like, primarily a minority, the largest group Latino. Now, how did we get there? Well, actually, if you look at, and I would encourage you to look at the history of immigration and the policies, 
Prior to 1965, our country used quotas to let people immigrate. And those quotas were basically from northern European countries. In 1965, with civil rights, there was a new immigration law passed. And that law said, we really want to look at how to bring families together. And if you look in 1970 forward, the immigration to this country dramatically changed, as you can see here, much more for Latin America, Mexico, and, and Asia. So what, what that's led to is a dynamic of change of the demographics. And this is a, a map of the primary groups of immigrants. So although there are many different immigrants, you see that the major group here is from Mexico. But then you see other countries, as noted here, uh, from Africa, uh, from other parts of the world. I think that's important to understand, but the other part of this, the other reason the wall won't, will not work to stop the demographic shift is the birth rates of these groups, right? So 40% of, of the immigrant population from Mexico, they have 32% of the growth of immigrant kids. Central America, 11%, 17% of the growth. But look at a Asia, 9%, but 23% of the growth. In the last several decades, 75% of the increased growth in children has been from Latinos and Asian Americans. Without that, we would have a negative population among kids, which would not be good for those of us over 65. <laughs> that has brought, that diversity has brought languages. There are 350 languages spoken in the United States. If you look at this, this is the number of languages here. This is the number of people. But I want you to look at this. If you can't see it, major metropolitan areas. This is San Francisco area. There's more than 150 languages spoken. 150 languages. Each of those languages, different culture, different way of thinking, right? If we look over here, we see that uh, the, the totality of those that do not speak English at home in the United States is like 21%, 8% more or less that are not uh, fluent in English. But look at California. We're looking at 44% that do not speak English at home, 44%. And almost 20% that are limited English proficient. Silicon Valley, 66% of the households do not speak English in the house. Right? That's America. That's new America. So when we look at the United States, and I show you that demographic, California is 20 years ahead of the rest of the nation. So we are living in the future for the rest of the nation demographically. Silicon Valley is even in front of that. And to understand that as health professions is key because this is not going to go back. We have to anticipate what that means and how we practice and what, how we see kids. So what is the social determinants? What are these groups like, right? Because indeed, we, we need to think not only about the diversity, but something about what, what exactly is going on with them. This is the uh, sort of model that the World Health and CDC use to think about population health. And I want you to use this to think about immigrant populations. And we see that the totality of the circle is the population health. This little part up here is genetics. Our institution spent a lot of time on genetics, but it's only that little part. 
And yet, when we look at the other parts of healthcare access, health behaviors, as importance. But we think about what are health behaviors? Health behaviors comes out of how people are raised, how people live, right? And that plays into the rest of the ecology. How, what's the environment they lived in? Paul just talked about environments that are really traumatic. Well, you know, we have to think about what trauma is in relative to you know, how people live. These are the things that we usually think about, right? Poverty, low education, racism, uh, cultural differences, languages, isms. I think we also should think about how disenfranchised people are from institutions. But now we're thinking about the issue of immigration. Because among those social determinants, somebody signing a bill can change them, right? We can't change poverty, really, by just signing a bill. But we can change immigration by somebody signing a bill. And that's really important. Let me just start off with, what's the difference between a refugee and an immigrant? So UN High Commission, these are the definitions. People that migrate an immigrant for economic reasons is different than a refugee. A refugee has to leave the country because they're in danger in their life or in their freedom. And we have honored that for generations. We have been that place that allows refugees to come in. We've been that place that allowed immigrants to come in. The question is, are we still that place? For immigrant kids or children in immigrant families, which we define as one parent not born in the U.S., this is what they look like. And this is in 2009, but basically the same. So this group is U.S. kids, that is a U.S. citizen kid with parents that are, are documented. This is U.S. citizen kids. This is kids with, with, um, with documentation. And only this little sliver here, which is about 6% in 2009, is down to about 4% now, are children that are undocumented. So in essence, when we talk about children and immigrant families, we're talking about either U.S. citizens, which now is about 90%, or, or kids that have been documented. Here is the problem. That this section here are kids that are U.S. citizens or documented, but have undocumented parents. What that means to us is the following. Um, this is the U.S., we see that among the immigrants in the U.S., about 30% or so have an undocumented parent. But look at California. One-third of all the kids in California that are living in immigrant families have an undocumented parent. 17%. What is 17%? One out of every six kids that you see has an undocumented parent. What does that mean? If we look at television, we know what it means. It means that kids go to school worried about whether they come home, whether their parent will be there. Dad goes to work, they're worried about, am I going to see my father this evening? Now think about the times in your own lives when you've had, even when you're small, the possibility that you weren't going to see your parent. What trauma, even for the instant, that caused. Think about it, living that type of, of, of environment for a long period of time. What, what does that mean? 
So I think that one of the things that we're concerned about here is that demographic, when we look at social determinants, of whether you're legal as a child is one thing, but more importantly, whether your parent is legal or not, and what is their status. And even if they're legal, even if they have papers, is that going to change by somebody signing a, a, a bill, by you know, having somebody say, you know, well, you no longer have permission to stay here. What are the other things that we need to understand about children and immigrant families? This, this is something I want you to kind of think about because these are not homogeneous groups. These are very heterogeneous. And they're heterogeneous because they're coming from different countries with different experiences and different social classes. This is one thing that we all look at, the social structure of the family. And what we see here is children in, in, with two-parent families. Here are native. Here's the immigrant population. And you see these are different groups across the, the spectrum here from Mexico, Central America, Southeast Asia, uh, Asia, uh, European, Africa. So even by that, you can see, well, you know, most children in immigrant families, on the average, live in two-parent families. But they also have differences in education. This is less than the high school, dark purple, gray, high school, college. And you see that from Mexico, very few have college. Most uh, a number have uh, less than, than a high school education, primarily uh, primary school. But then we see the spectrum here. And some of these groups have 70% that are college educated. If you look at Silicon Valley, uh, the engineers that come from all over the world, that's part of the immigrant population, right? So that sets up a different dynamic when we think about this. And yet, they still have that cultural issue, which is language at home. You see almost all of them have a predominance of speaking uh, other than English at home. What education does and, and uh, it really sets you up for whether you're going to live in poverty or not. And as we see in the educational framework, uh, the, the Mexican-American population here, which is the largest immigrant population, has the highest level of both below poverty line and 100 percent are uh, up to 200% poverty line, almost two-thirds. So for some groups, this is really significant, that they live in poverty. Here's the average for natives, and in other groups, they're lower. So as we think about children and immigrant population, particularly you in San Francisco, you're going to see lots of different groups. And yet, we shouldn't just look at the social class. We shouldn't just look at the immigrant status. We need to look at the totality of what the characteristics of those families are. What about their health status? This is a, uh, a, a painting from Carmen Lomas Garza, who does a lot of things about the culture of different groups. I love this because you can see it's sort of the folk medicine. And yet, it brings up the issue that a lot of times, even if you're educated, you still have a lot of beliefs that are fundamentally cultural, right? Uh, we all do. When we look at immigrants and refugees, we need to distinguish you know, what exactly has happened to them. And I, I see kids in, in clinic, and we see them from all over Latin America. 
And one of the things we try to do is assess what, what has happened to them, right? So, you know, although the majority of the kids that I showed you from that uh, round circle are U.S. born, there's a large section that are refugees or kids that are first generation, that is born outside of the U.S. that come here. These are the things that we need to decide. Are they refugees? And I'll show you why that's so important, but basically they get services. Are they immigrants? who may not get services. Uh, what was their social class? Even from Mexico, I can see families that were living in, uh, in Mexico City, parents are well-to-do, and I see them. They're different than somebody that comes from the frontera and in a sixth-grade education. So that's the dynamic of education and, and social class that they may have in their country. Trauma uh, uh, coming to this country. Um, the trauma, as Paul points out, is both in the home and coming here. I had one uh, father that came in with two daughters, fairly well-dressed, and lived in, in, in Guatemala. And I asked him, what are you doing here? I mean, they had funds and everything. He said, the gangs told me unless I gave them my, my business, they would kill my kids. So... You know, Paul points out, why does somebody take the risk? Well, what risk is there if your kids are going to get killed versus coming here and trying to get through the system? That's not a hard risk to take, right? So we do have lots of families that have the trauma, not just coming across, but from their prior history in their country. Trauma, clearly you've heard stories, and those stories are very much true, that Coming across the border is dangerous. It's physically, uh, can be perhaps physical abuse, sexual abuse, and just the psychological trauma of coming through the process of getting to the United States and getting through the Border Patrol and all that. That is traumatic, and Paul showed some of the things that are going on. I'll talk a little bit more about that, but that's another assessment. Uh, moreover, you know, what has happened to their current immigration status? And lastly, you know, do they have any support here? Are they, are they here with other family members? Do they have other things that will help them support? Um, when we look at other factors in terms of uh, health, we have to think, as Paul points out, uh, you know, are these kids coming healthy or are they have problems in chronic disease, malnutrition, uh, infectious disease? On the average, they tend not to be physically to unhealthy, but I think the psychological stress is really quite high. And lastly, when we think about health, the two things that I think have been quite remarkable, one is that the expectation, particularly those first-generation you know, kids that are coming, uh, seem to be, over the several decades, not as bad as we thought they would once they're here. That is, even though parents have poverty, they don't have very high education, their kids' health status seems to be relatively okay. And that turns out to be what people have called the immigrant paradox. The paradox that in this country, usually if you have poverty, low education, low, uh, low social class, your health is poor. Uh, this group tends to at least seem, uh, at least in surveys, seems to indicate that they're not as poor as we would expect. That's the paradox. Here's the problem, though. The longer they stay in this country, the worse their health gets. 
I was on the Institute of Medicine's uh, Committee for Immigrant Kids in, in the late uh, 1990s. That was astonishing because everything we looked at, health, mental health, education, got worse. So we ended up by saying, America may be toxic. And yet that's important to understand. Why? Why do people change? What things should we not change and keep them healthy? That's something we don't know. Let me show you a little bit of those things. Here's birth weight, right? Birth weight's really important. Uh, this is something from the, the 1990s. We did a study in the 80s, the studies that are done now. Those red bars are all women that are immigrants. And their proportion of low birth weight is always lower than native-born. I want to point out one particular one from Africa. Look at the difference between African-Americans born in this country and African-Americans or Africans born in other countries. There's no program that decreases uh, low birth weight that much. <coughs> that is true for all across. We look at infant mortality, all those things, the same picture. Using the National Survey of Children's Health, these are the odds ratios of uh, uh, comparing immigrants here to uh, third generations. And what we see here, the reds are significant, that many of these things that we think about as developmental issues are, for the most part, lower in children and immigrant families. Now, remember, these are a small proportion of first generation, the majority second generation. Okay? Now, the question will be, is that because they just don't know? Hard to say, because first generation would get access to health care, right? Or a second generation. So what we see here is, for example, behavioral problems less, uh, depression less, a little bit hard for me to see there, depression, uh, autistic disorders, same, interesting, and all the rest are, are lower. But even with just looking at insured kids, so everybody has access, they're still lower. So the question to us as, as investigators in pediatrics, what is that? What factor can we find that could be very useful to us to understand that this helps families? Is it the culture? Is it social connectedness? Is it uh, how people rear their kids? We don't know. But it is important to investigate. But here's the other problem. The longer they stay in this country, the worse it gets. This, this is U.S. born, and these are then, by the time state are living in the United States, things get worse. And whether that's asthma or, or chronic disease, they all get worse. Now, some of that is behaviors. Uh, while new immigrants don't smoke as much as they stay here, they smoke more, they drink more, et cetera, right? So this is something that as we look at prevention, we need to think about what are those things that immigrant families do that we want to support and not change? Allow them not to be Americanized, but allow them to keep their culture. What about healthcare utilization? Well, I use these two, again, photo from a uh, painting from Carmen Lomas Casa. Uh, families may be using both. They may use folk medicine at home, don't tell you. 
and then they may come to you to get health care, right? So that's something that I think we as uh, health practitioners need to think about and, and, and work with. The uh, issue of, of looking at this as, as uh, you know, primarily health insurance is important because, indeed, one of the things that we have in this country is if you don't get health insurance, then you're probably not going to get uh, access to care, right? Now, what's interesting about immigrants and different groups of immigrants is almost all immigrants work, and you see that, that sort of like Greenbar is a portion that work. But the immigrants that work with jobs that get health insurance, like this group here, which are non basically uh, immigrants from non-Latin uh, American countries, it's much larger than immigrants from Mexico that work but rarely get health insurance. And that is because at the end of the day, they're working in jobs that don't provide health insurance or work part-time jobs, right? And they're, therefore, they tend to have the largest uninsured group. And among uh, Latinos in general, those that are first generation, clearly undocumented, are ones that are going to have less health insurance. So, you know, as, as we look forward, this is the group that's most at risk, the group that's first generation, undocumented, and even though they're working, sometimes two or three jobs, they still don't get health care. And this demonstrates uh, that issue more so in the sense that uh, when we look at no health insurance, uh, Hispanic uh, children and immigrant families, one in four does not have health insurance. No preventive care, 16%. And did not receive mental health. Well, that's common among all these. Among the largest immigrant group, they rarely get mental health. And yet, if you think about who needs it the most, <laughs> It's those groups that have tried to come across the border that have had trauma and are dealing with post-traumatic stress, dealing with depression, anxiety, and where they show up sometimes in our clinic. But, you know, one of the problems that we all have, as you know, is where do we get those kinds of services long-term? Do we go to schools? And, you know, do you send them to psychiatrists? How many psychiatrists are there for children? Do you set them for mental health uh, therapists? How many mental health therapists speak Spanish or other languages? Hard to do mental health if you can't speak to them. So that is a real challenge for us. And I think in utilization, although we can get them to the, through the part of insurance, access to care is going to be important. Now, what I said previously is that we have here a situation where if you're a refugee or you're U.S. born, then you get health care. And this uh, table here shows that, that if you're a U.S. citizen child with undocumented parents, this one here, you see that you're eligible because you're a U.S. citizen, right? But if you're pregnant and if you're not undocumented, it's unclear whether you get, if you are undocumented rather, it's unclear whether you get access to care. Um, even if you have lawful documentation to be in this country, in some states, they will not give you any services for five years. 
They want you to be a good person for five years before they give you anything. Luckily, in our state, that's not happened in others. Whether also, whether you're under 18, over 18, that's the situation. But if you're a refugee, again, this is why it's so important to be determined whether you're a refugee. You get services across the board. So the people that are coming up to the border, they want to be let in because of the trauma and the things that Paul talked about, but you know, we all see in the news every day. And the way that they can get in is at being asked that they're a threat for their lives, which they are. And if they become refugees, have refugee status, then they end up getting all the services that we would want to give them. This last group, though, is a group that we're particularly interested in, is undocumented uh, parents, women, that deliver. And I'll show you in a minute a study that we've done with this group. But this, this is a group that's having babies, uh, and yet they don't have access to services. Now think about that prior uh, infant mortality and low birth weight I showed you. Even without services, they still do pretty well. But that doesn't mean that they don't have health care issues. And clearly, you know, that just puts them more at risk. So one of the things that needs to be done is thinking about how we change this to make sure that everybody gets care. Unfortunately, the dynamics of our government right now is in a bit of a turmoil. And I think one of the things that we need to think about is how can we impress upon our policy leaders about what this actually means. What does this mean on the ground level? What does it mean day to day for our kids and families? Now, as I said, you know, this has been something uh, that sort of disrupted the politics of this country. And this picture here, this uh, uh, figure here shows that. Um, so undocumented children are not eligible for any health, federal health care services. And even those that are, as I just said, sometimes it takes five years for them to get anything. The green states... California being one of the early ones, Santa Clara County being one of the early ones, said kids are important, they ought to get health care. And they gave health care to all kids, independent of whether they were documented or not documented, U.S. citizens or not. That was the right thing to do. That was the humane thing to do. And as you see here, that that has spread throughout California and through the green states. The blue states give access to use Medicaid dollars to help those documented immigrants to get care. And the gray states just think, those, those kids don't exist. So that's the status of our country right now. It's fractured. It's different people valuing different things. Now I'd like to think that it's really not valuing different things, but not having the knowledge or perspective of what it means, right? And I think giving the knowledge and perspective of what this means is really important because the folks that we're talking about can't speak up. They don't have a voice. We're the ones that have a voice, and we're the ones that kind of need to do, do this and bring this to the, the forefront. So let's 
talk about uh, barriers in, in um, having to do with disabilities. What are those? Well, I think you can think about it just from what I've discussed, right? Uh, health insurance. Uh, if you don't have health insurance, it's hard to get to some place and get care. The immigration issues, uh, the fear of that. Uh, and yet, you know, we're here to serve. We're here to provide those services. Uh, there was a study by Lynn in pediatrics that looked at uh, autistic spectrum disorders, developmental delay, uh, looking at immigrant, children in immigrant families, and they were twice as likely to lack a usual source of care and have poor communication. So this is, you know, across the country that even though they have access for U.S. kids, remember most of these kids are U.S. born, they still have that problem of getting through the system. As I looked at this, it reminded me of the IOM studies that have been out in terms of what are the problems of getting care to kids, and it talks about access, it talks about bias of physicians, problems in our system. There's a study in Canada that, that, that you're seeing here that comes up with the same things, basically uh, identifying challenges were the lack of cultural competency among the providers, communication issues, we can't talk to the family because we don't speak the same language, health beliefs, they believe something different than what we do, uh, lack of rapport, it's hard to relate to somebody if you can't talk to them, and developing patient-centered and self-advocacy. So, as you know, it's really important for kids or any, any family that has a chronic disease to be able to advocate for themselves. How do we end up doing that with families that have different culture, different language, uh, different kinds of backgrounds, right? That is a challenge. Uh, we have, we're in the process of just completing and submitting a paper where we looked at the California Health Interview Survey of all of California and looked at the families that were limited English proficient, which is a pretty, it's about a third of all the kids in California. Those families reported a, uh, a lower rate of communication with their, primary, with their physicians. And the calculation here showed that they had a 60% less likelihood of having effective communications. So think about all those things I've talked about and their risk factors, particularly the environment and the prevention and the social determinants. How do we get to that if we can't talk to them, if we can't communicate with them? That's a challenge. And we have to really be very introspective to ask that question of ourselves. How effective are we as communicators with these families? Because we know if we're not effective, our treatments are going to not be very effective either. This was an interesting study because it brought to light that this issue is not just an issue for us in this country. It's an issue for around the world, and Paul spoke about this. There's a paper out of Chile where they did a literature review for the last decade, 2006 to 16, 107 articles, about half from Europe, a third from this country. What they found was something that you look at these things, you say, yeah, of course, it happens here. Uh, higher use of hospitals and ERs by this population. 
seeking care was affected by the cultural norms, models of disease, lack of safety net networks, language barriers, economic and social uh, adversity. So these were things that we look around the world, they're consistent. And you would say, of course they're consistent because they're all going through the basic same thing. They're coming to a country that is not like them, may not welcome them, and it's not set up to treat them. So why would we, be, we expect anything different? Um, they also access factors, family-related difficulties, navigating systems, underlying that one, and the lack of basic rights, that not understanding what rights do they have. But this last one, I think, is also important. It's something that the Institute of Medicine has brought up a lot of times, which is the health profession's barriers, our biases, our stereotypes, our prejudices, language and communication barriers. At Stanford, we've been looking at unconscious bias, and I reviewed the literature for the last 10 years. And what's kind of sad is that the IOM came out in 2002 or so and said, uh, we need to think about how we deal with our unconscious bias. And if you look at the literature for the last 10 years, that continues to report the idea that physicians and health professions have unconscious bias that impacts healthcare in a negative way. So even though we get a national report None of that has changed. So that's something, particularly for kids most at risk, the kids that you all see, that we need to think about how we change that. Immigration and social policies. The wall. Paul's been at uh, Brownsville. I went there, too. What's interesting is to see these kids and to see that they almost feel safer here and in fact, they probably are, because in their countries, they're getting shot at. They're getting physically uh, abused, sexually abused. The problem is that our refugee policy tends to change sometimes with a memo or with somebody signing something, as it has, right? So we as a country need to think about what do we want our country to stand for when we think about refugees. And that is important, and that hopefully our 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 people in Congress will start kind of uh, being more, more adult about this issue. Um, parents and children, the fear. You know, clearly you don't, have, you don't have to imagine this too much, but what does it do to somebody to go through this process? You're not only living in terror in your country, you're coming to this country and then having to go through all this. More importantly, even if you get through that's not the end. Even if you get refugee status, you have to live with all that trauma. And in this country, you also have to live with the fact that you're an immigrant and what that means and how people, as our president does, talks about that, right? I don't know what the long-term effects of that's going to be for our kids, but I'm concerned that that has significant impact. It can have significant impact. Finally, um, if we think about immigration policy, again, encourage you to look at the history of immigration in this country. It has been to really control what we look like, how we think. And I think it's been mostly looking at adults. We have never thought about how those policies affect kids. And yet we need to think about that because at the end of the day, what I hope I showed you is not about 
the small percentage, though significant, of kids that are first generation. It's about the larger percentage that are U.S. citizens. They're going to be American. They're going to be American adults trying to advance this country forward. That to live in a situation where you don't know what's going to happen to your parents. We think about ACEs. One of those things is really, you know, what happens to you as a child. That, to me, is something that our, our legislation needs to think about: is that families with undocumented parents can cause a real stress in the lives of kids. Documentation and getting to uh, uh, getting to that process uh, can be quite traumatic, and particularly when the when the lines for that change. Public charge, recently. The, the Trump administration wanted to change public charge and what it meant. And it meant that if your kid got, you know, food in school, that was a public charge. And I think that those people that stood up and said that's not the thing we want to do are, are people that are looking at this as what we want to do with our immigrant population. DACA. You know, these are kids that were brought here. They had no, no uh, uh, say in that process. And yet, we're still battling with DACA. And we see from reports of that group that they're successful. They do all kinds of things. Several of my students at Stanford are DACA students. I'm sure they're DACA students in all of our medical schools. Paul brought up you know, what's happened for the future of this. And I think one of the issues is at the end of the day, we don't know what happens to kids that go through war. We don't know what happens long-term for kids to come as refugees. I always say to you, I don't know what's going to happen when you have a child who comes home every day because the mother's undocumented, doesn't know where the mother's going to be there. What is the long-term effects of that for development, for depression, for anxiety? for even just belief what this country is about, right? I think those are things that we need to be concerned about and certainly something that worries me a lot. Yeah, we can do something. We did a study, my colleagues at the Immigration Policy Lab and I and General Peets, we looked at DACA from Oregon and we were able to identify women that were eligible for DACA and had babies. And those babies could be followed. And what we found was that the children of parents that had DACA eligibility had kids that had half as much mental health disorders as those that did not. One policy impacting those kids by decreasing half of the mental health issues so that, to me, says that one policy set together by the president's executive order, rather than Congress, has major impact on child health. So I think it just says, you know, how government can actually be positive. It doesn't always have to be negative. So here's what I think has to change. Um, immigration policies. I know we have to have laws. But we have to have laws that are supportive of families, right? 
if we're going to do whatever processing we have with the law, it has to be sensitive to the family. Uh, and this, I think, particularly with ICE and refugee processing. DACA needs to be supported and, and, and finalized the path to citizenship. I really believe that our parents who are undocumented and have U.S. citizens need to have that path as well. We can't have U.S. citizens lose their, lose their parents, particularly when they're you know, six months old, a year old, five years old. We have to make sure that public charge does not take away that threat of understanding what public charge is, to not take away services to kids, to not inhibit families from using services for their kids. I think that the state and local governments here have done a great job. I've talked about health insurance for all those kids that were undocumented. We led the way that spread throughout the nation, as we can see here with these things. But lastly, I think we need to have insightful thoughts about how we practice. Uh, clearly, I, my deanship has been in diversifying our workforce. Uh, it needs to continue. 50% of all the kids in California are Latino, 5% of the pediatricians. And not that they have to be matched up, but there's a concern there. Cultural competency in training. Uh, our schools don't do that all that well. Uh, unconscious bias training, likewise. These are important things if we're going to have a society that's diverse. Because there's no way even for me being a Latino to understand every Latino patient. And certainly, I don't speak all these languages. How do you provide a person like a physician or a health profession the ability to function in a very dynamic society that has all kinds of diversity? I think interpreters need to be instituted more, uh, which you know, has been problematic a bit because of resources. But lastly, I think in the, in the realm of healthcare providers, we need to partner with communities, with uh, community workers, promotoras, because at the end of the day, what we're looking at is how not just to treat people in the office, but that ecology that I talked about, we need to think about how we affect that. Lastly, our healthcare system needs to change, and that clearly uh, improving literacy uh, for our families, how, how they access the care, make it easier, truly make it patient-centered, and last but not least, make them empowered. When I was growing up in the 50s, Norman Rockwell was a person to me that sort of exemplified uh, at least what America was about, right? He had these classic pictures. This is one I like. Because at the end of the day, it just said, this is a country that we respect everybody. We want everybody to be involved through the golden rule. And I think that sometimes we need to stand up for what we believe in, this country stands for. And I think this is probably the time, particularly for our kids. Because if we can do that, we're not just standing up for the kids and their families. As I pointed out, we're standing up for the future. And that future is going to be from these kids, right? So I want to thank you for listening, and uh, we can answer some questions. Thank you. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.